Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Um, this very biblical, where the angels cry holy, right? Creation cries holy. The Bible tells us that even the demons know. It's like the only part of creation sometimes that fails to see the holiness of God is us, right? Because of our sinfulness. We're going to talk about that this morning. Father, we pray your blessings upon our time together this morning. Lord, we, we've prepared ourselves in song and worship, Lord, and, and the sense of the movement of the Spirit, Lord, as we open the truth of your word. Lord, may it speak clearly to us. May we be challenged, Lord, by the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we would leave here different. I pray that through the power of the Spirit, we would be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Did you ever, as a kid, play the game hide and seek? How many? Let's just go show of hands. Most of you. All of you. Yeah. If you're under the age of 18, you're like, I'm still playing, right? That's a fun game. I remember when I was a kid, we would play hide and seek and we would usually kind of set up boundaries this is the way hide and seek works right one person counts and then everybody else goes and hides we'd set up boundaries right well you can't go past the road if it was outside or you can't go in this room or in the attic why do we do that because when you hide what's the object you don't want to be found do you if i'm hiding from you i don't want to be found and so if truth be told when i was a kid sometimes i'd you know i'd fudge the boundaries a little bit because i didn't want to be found and I'll never forget when I was in RAs, and if you're a little bit older and you're from a Baptist church, you remember RAs. RAs were royal ambassadors. When I was coming up Wednesday nights for us were royal ambassadors, RAs, and we would go and royal ambassadors was where we would learn scripture and we would do service projects, but it was, there was kind of an outdoor theme to it. And so we would go camping and we'd learn to tie knots and we'd, we'd do cool things kind of with our teacher. And one night we came to RAs, one Wednesday night, I was at Flat Creek Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. And our teacher said, tonight we're going to play hide and seek. And I was like, yes. Right, I was like eight. I don't know how old I was. He said, I'm going to go outside in the woods and I'm going to hide. And the other teacher here is going to, you know, count. We're going to time. I need about five minutes. I'm going to go hide and then you come and find me. We're like, awesome. So he goes, he leaves. And it's, it's about 6, 6.30 and it's fall. And so it's already getting a little dark. And you know that for an eight-year-old boy, anything outside after dark is cool, right? It doesn't really matter what it is. If you're outside after dark, it's getting, you know, we can see it getting dark, and he's out in the woods, so we're going to go in the woods and hide. And so five minutes, you know, seems like forever, and so we just go barreling out all these little boys, probably 15, I don't know how many, uh, how many there were, I was 15 or 20 of these little boys, and we, there's this lot beside our church that was wooded, and it was kind of bound by the, the sanctuary and the, uh, the parking lot and then a couple of roads, and so it was a limited amount of space. It wasn't that big, but it was, a, you know, four or five acres, I don't know how big it was, but a good little space to hide. But there were 15 or 20 of us, eight-year-old boys, energetic. And I'm thinking, we're going to find this guy. And then 30 minutes later, we had no clue where the guy was. We never found him. Never found him. Never got sight of him. Never heard him. Nothing. And so our teacher finally called. They had kind of worked this out, I think. They call, he called us back in. And we waited in the room. And he didn't want, to see where, he didn't want us to see where he was hiding. And so we wait in the room. And he comes walking back in the room. We're like, where? And he kind of explains himself to us. 
He said, well, it was pretty simple, guys. He said, he had on some dark clothes. He kind of thought this through a little bit. But he said, I just kind of walked out in kind of one of the far corners, and I sat down up against a tree, and I kind of faced away from the building, and I just piled leaves all up on myself, over, over my legs, and over my, you know, he said, I piled them up pretty high, and then I scooped a few kind of up on my head, and he said, I just sat there, and I didn't move. And for 30 minutes, 20 little eight-year-old boys scoured the woods for this man, and we never found him. And I, I, I never forgot that moment. You know why I never forget that moment? Because we couldn't find him. He hid well, didn't he? And for the little eight-year-old kid, he was like this hero all of a sudden. Wow. I mean, I was just oh, I was so amazed that he was able to hide, and we, we couldn't find him. Now, we laugh about that, right? Because that was, you know, for me, years ago, 30 years ago, more, and all these years ago when I did this. But, but here's the challenge, and here's kind of I want to bring this closer to home for you this morning. I believe far too many followers of Christ are still playing, playing hide-and-seek. You say, what? what do you mean hide-and-seek? You're, you're probably not playing hide-and-seek with other people, but you're playing it with the Lord, aren't you? How many things do we believe we can hide from the Lord? How many things do we do and we say, you know what, if I can, if I can hide this from my spouse or from my boss or from my friends or my Sunday school teacher, if I can hide these things from all these people, maybe I can hide them from the Lord. And I believe there are plenty of followers of Christ that hide things from the Lord on a regular basis. And so I just want to kind of reach out to you this morning. If you've come to church this morning, maybe you're running from the Lord, maybe you're hiding something, maybe there's something going on you don't want anybody else to know about, I think the text we're going to study this morning is going to speak directly into your heart. So I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles to open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We are continuing our study this morning entitled In the Beginning. It's a study through the book of Genesis. We've already covered the first two chapters. We've seen the beauty of creation. We've seen the power of God. We've seen his glory. We've seen his plan. We've seen his design. And then we opened last week to begin the study of chapter 3. And we made the comment and we made the observation that in the beauty of the Lord and all his creation and all he had done in the first two chapters, in chapter 3, everything changes. Everything changes because sin enters the world. And so we saw last week, as we kind of studied through the first few verses, this idea of the serpent. And we had this conversation about the serpent and who the serpent was and how he tempted Eve. And we saw that the serpent is actually Satan himself. And we looked at some characteristics and we talked about how Satan is very deceptive and how he will steal, kill, and destroy anything he can from us. We talked about how Satan will tempt us, but he doesn't tempt us with things that are ugly or unwanted. He tempts us with things that are, that are desirable to us. He takes the things that we want and he twists them and he molds them and he shapes them so, so he, who Satan, can receive glory himself, which he tries to do, he tries to steal the Lord's glory. And he tempts us with things that are desirable to us. And then we see in that text, in the first part of Genesis 3, that when sin entered the world, when Eve partook of the fruit, and Adam did as well, sin entered the world and everything changed. And we said from that moment forward, disease and sickness and heartache and heartbreak and eventually death came all because of sin. And so I want to continue our study this morning. And I want to kind of just kind of clue you in where we're going over the next little while. The first several verses are kind of a downer. <laughs> they're sad to read. They're difficult to study. They're hard for us to understand sometimes in context of our lives. 
Because we don't want to see ourselves there. But I want to just tell you that when we get to the end, there's going to be some hope. So we're going to wade through some very difficult things. And we're going to talk about sin and how it affects us and where it leads us this morning. And then we're going to get to a place of hope at the end. So let's read this morning, if we would, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to focus, first of all, on verses 8 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says, then the man and his wife, remember, they had just eaten of the fruit. They've realized their sinfulness. They've made the mistake. And let me, just, let me just point this out grammatically for you. At this point in Scripture, the woman doesn't yet have a name. She'll be named at the end of this chapter. So I'll probably refer to her as Eve, but the Bible will speak of her of Adam's wife or the woman. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What, what, what a beautiful picture of how our relationship with the Lord ought to be. And they hid from him among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Now, there's an interesting pattern here we're going to get into, and I want you to see it beforehand, and then I want you to see it as we walk through it. There's this interesting pattern in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8, really through verse 13 and following. There's this interesting pattern of beauty and created order and the glory of God, but there's this pattern in chapter 3 of a descent away from the things of the Lord. So God has created it, it's perfect, there's, there's this relationship with Adam and Eve, and the fact that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day points to the relationship he wants to have with us. But we see this ever-widening gap between creation, between God himself, and between Adam and Eve, the created order, and we see, in the way I've kind of phrased it and thought through it, is this descending pattern away from the things of the Lord. We're going to see that Adam and Eve are going to get farther and farther and farther away from the things of the Lord. And so there's one main idea I want to kind of talk about and then I want to unpack it as we walk through these verses again. Here's the first point I want you to see. Number one, sin keeps us from enjoying the glory of the Lord. Sin will absolutely steal your joy. Sin will steal your hope. It will steal your peace. It will steal your comfort. It will remove you from being able to enjoy the glory of the Lord. Now, I love how we see, before we understand this descent away from the things of the Lord, we see this clear picture of who the Lord wants to be in our lives. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I just think it's beautiful because we see here that God is not some distant power that doesn't care. He's not some creature somewhere in the universe that spun things into existence, as the deists would say, and then just kind of lets them play themselves out. He's not a vengeful, hateful God. He's a God that in this context, when all things were right, walked in the cool of the day. Why? Because he wanted to fellowship and love Adam and Eve. It's a reminder of kind of where we ought to get back to in our walk. Sin has separated us. The world is tough. We're oftentimes away from the things of the Lord, but it's a picture at least. It's a reminder. It's a model of where we want to get back to. Gracie and I had this very interesting conversation this week. I didn't tell her I was going to tell this story, so don't get nervous. 
It's going to be okay. It's going to be a good story. Gracie is 13, and many of you have teenagers and have had teenagers. And if you have teenagers, you appreciate those moments where they're interested in listening, right? Are there ever moments when they don't want to listen, parents? Yeah? Okay. So you appreciate the moments they want to listen. And we used to, I don't know if there's a better phrase for it now, teachers, but we used to call these teachable moments. When a kid asks you a question and is interested to hear. So we get into this discussion last week. She's reading some things in her Bible and she's asking me about sin. And she said, look, I know that this sin separates us from the Lord. And she said, I know that our sin will keep us from eternity if we don't repent. And, you know, we understand that salvation through Christ will save us from those sins. We, we get that. But the thing she wanted to talk about is sin within the life of a believer. I think it's a great question. What happens when a believer sins? We would say if you're truly a follower of Christ, and, and you know, we may have to think through that a little bit. If you've said to me, I prayed a prayer when I was eight and I've been sinful ever since, I may ask you to think through that prayer again, honestly. Are you really saved? That'd be the first question I'd ask. But let's assume you're saved. You truly repented of your sins, you accepted Christ, you've lived a life for him, and at some point you make a mistake and you sin. What does that do for a believer? Well, I think we see several things in Scripture, and that's not what this sermon is about, but I think one of the things we see biblically is that when a believer sins, it separates us from enjoying the things of the Lord. Right? God's got a path for us, God's got a plan for us, God's want, God wants to enjoy us and fellowship with us, and, and to use the phrase of Genesis 3, walk in the garden with us in the cool of the day, hand in hand, arm in arm. And when we sin against him, we violate that and we separate ourselves from that. And it keeps us from enjoying the glory of the Lord. Now we see that here in the book of Genesis. We see a man and woman who've made a mistake. They had clear instruction from the Lord. They had clear direction. They made a mistake. They sinned against God. And we begin to see that that sin is going to separate them and keep them from enjoying the beauty and the glory of the Lord. But we're going to see phases and steps. I want you to... Kind of think through this with me if you would. Look again at verse 8. So the man and his wife heard the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And what's their response in that verse? What does the Bible say? They hid, right? They hid from the Lord. See, one of the things that we see is that our sin drives us oftentimes into hiding from the Lord. If you've ever thought about it and you, you can kind of think through your life or maybe your personal experience, sometimes if you're like me, when I make mistakes or I'm sinful... There's something I've done wrong. The, the last thing sometimes I want to do is somebody ask me about it. Well, because we're ashamed, we're not happy we did it, we wish we could change it, we'd go back and redo it if we could, we want to do better next time. And it kind of drives us into hiding. And so we have, this, we have this mindset sometimes, I think it goes back to the hide and seek game. We have this mindset that if I'm sinful, and sometimes I sin, that if I can just kind of hide those things from the Lord, he won't know about it. As if we're good enough or smart enough or whatever adjective you want to use to be able to hide our sin from the Lord. Now, none of us would say that or believe that biblically. In fact, we would say that's really not true according to what the truth of the word says. But oftentimes we live our lives like that, don't we? I'm going to hide this from the Lord and I'm just going to keep doing it because he's never really going to find out. I want to read for you Psalm 139, and you don't have to turn there with me, but you can write it down in your notes and look it up later. Understanding what the Lord actually knows and how much the Lord actually sees, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, says this, speaking to the Lord, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, 
know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I want to be very clear in this passage of scripture. You can't actually hide from the Lord. He knows everything. And so Adam and Eve, in their hiding, all they actually did, they didn't keep knowledge from the Lord. They didn't fix the problem. All they did is one step farther away from the Lord, isn't it? Their sin separated them from the things of the Lord. Now you kind of think through this and you think, if I was God, how would I respond? (laughs) God had every right at this moment to be angry with Adam and Eve. Adam had every right to to be vengeful and and to punish him. They directly disobeyed him. He had every right to cast them away and he eventually is going to cast them out of the garden. We'll get to that. But I want you to notice his response instead. Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden. The Bible tells us in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, God knew where he was, didn't he? God knew exactly where he was, but yet he shows grace and love by giving Adam a chance to respond. I love you enough. I want want to keep this relationship, Adam. Even though I know exactly where you are, I'm going to call out to you, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. Now listen to what Adam says. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now God knew all these things. Adam didn't tell God anything he didn't already know, but it gave God an opportunity to speak to Adam, and it gave Adam a chance to kind of voice something to the Lord. And I think, and this is just my personal opinion, God maybe had thought or hoped or wished, and of course God knows everything, so that's a kind of theological discussion there. But I think God would have lied for Adam at that moment to have repented, Lord, forgive me. I I failed, you know, I I ate of this fruit, I know I'm supposed to, I'm going to fall at your feet and beg for your mercy. But instead of doing that, Adam expresses something about himself that's very interesting. And here's kind of the second thing I want you to see, I want to talk through this. Our sin separates us from the Lord, it causes us to hide, but here's the next thing it does. Our sin sometimes leads to fear, doesn't it? Not only do we want to hide from the Lord when we do things wrong, but sometimes we're very fearful of the Lord. But here's the thing as we kind of think through this. Adam's afraid because of the, the power of the Lord and what the Lord could do. And he's probably fearful of exactly what was going to happen. But here's the interesting thing I want you to see. Let's kind of delve into the heart of Adam just a little bit. Adam has a chance to repent. He has a chance to speak to the Lord about what he did. And instead of repenting, instead of recognizing his position in front of the Lord, instead of calling out to the Lord for, the, for mercy, all Adam is concerned with was his personal fault, wasn't he? Adam says, I was afraid. It's really not about you, Lord. It's about me. And that's what sin is, isn't it? It's not really about what you want, Lord. It's not about your desire or your heart. It's about my personal selfishness. One writer explained it like this. In his new self-focused state, speaking of Adam, he was more concerned about how he felt than about his sin against God. Isn't that kind of what sin does to us? It separates us from the Lord. It causes us to, to, to be shameful and to want to hide and to be afraid and to be far more concerned about what we want than about what the Lord wants. You begin to see this pattern, right? We're separating ourselves more. There's this descent. We're falling farther and farther away from God's created order in Genesis 1 and 2. 
We're distancing ourselves more and more from the things of the Lord. We're putting more and more gulfs in between us and the Lord. We're falling farther and farther and farther away from him. But it goes a step farther. Look at verse 12. So the man said, now they finally got a chance to reckon with the Lord. Here's exactly what happened, Lord. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Here's what sin does to it. It causes us to fear and to hide and be ashamed and separates us from the Lord. But here's the next thing we see in verses 12 and 13. Our sin leads us to abandon responsibility. Isn't that what sin does? God, it's not really my fault that I did this. It's somebody else's. Listen to what Adam does. Adam has kind of the nerve to say to the Lord, Lord, I hate, to, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you put this woman here and she did this to me, right? It's really, it's, I mean, God, you know, I hate to tell you, it's really your fault. Ultimately, it's your fault, Lord. I didn't do anything wrong. If you had to put her here, it's interesting because if you go back and study when God created the woman and brought her to the man, he was happy, wasn't he? Finally, we talked about it a few weeks ago, how he rejoiced in this creation, Finally, someone that's suitable and we're a perfect match. And, and thank you, Lord. And here we are just a few days or a few weeks or however long the time frame is later. And Adam wants to blame the Lord for giving him this woman. Now we laugh at him and we think that's ridiculous, but we do the same thing, don't we? We come on from work, men. It's been a long day and, and maybe our wife says something that we don't really like or appreciate and we snap back at her and our response is, well, honey, you know, if you hadn't jumped on me when I came in the door, I never would have said that to you, right? It's not my fault, it's your fault. Or if I hadn't had such a long day at work, man, if my boss hadn't been on me, it's not my fault, it's the boss's fault. Or if the kids hadn't been so loud and screaming and I, I couldn't think, it's not my fault, it's the kid's fault, Right? And we, we play the blame game. We're good at that. Y'all, y'all quit looking at each other. Too many of y'all are looking at each other. Y'all talk about it over dinner, not now. <laughs> we play the blame game. Don't we? That's what sin drives us to that point. Sin gets us to the point that we're not thinking clearly about our actions. We, we, don't, we don't want to take response. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's somebody else's fault, Lord. Maybe it's your fault for putting me here. Maybe it's your fault, Lord, for giving me this situation in my life that I can't deal with. Or maybe it's my wife's fault, or maybe it's my husband's fault, or my kids, or my boss. On and on the list goes. Sin drives us to the point that we're no longer interested in taking responsibility. But here's maybe the scariest part about sin in our lives. Not only does it cause us to to separate ourselves from the Lord, to hide from Him, to be fearful of him, to blame other people, to not take responsibility. All those things are true, but maybe the most scary part of sin is sometimes if we allow it to creep and to creep and to creep, sometimes sin causes us to lose control of who we are, doesn't it? Sin is extremely powerful in our lives. And the devil is very interested in doing everything he can to destroy you. And so he's going to pick those areas in your life where you're most vulnerable and he's going to try to gain control of those areas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a famous German theologian, if you've ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you probably like him. I want to read a little bit of a lengthy quote. 
But I want you to stay with me and follow through. He talks about the power of sin over our lives. Listen to his words. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is exhausted in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desires for the creature are real. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus arouses, arouses, envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. I think that's right. If we're not careful, we'll allow the sin in our lives to creep in and, and it'll begin to make us afraid and angry and we hide and we're resentful and we don't take responsibility and eventually it controls us and you say, Adam, why are we talking about this today? Because I worry. I worry about the state of this church and every church and myself and pastors because I think if we were honest with each other as a society and as a group of Christians, we've allowed too much sin to creep into our lives. I think we've bought into it for whatever reason. Maybe because we like it. Maybe because it's popular. Maybe because everybody else. There's this whole reason we let it happen. But if we're not careful, we allow sin to creep into our life. And what we see scripturally is that that will cause us to descend farther and farther and farther away from the things of the Lord. I read an interesting quote from a guy, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I won't say it exactly like he said. But he said, it's, kind of, it's a silly little quote, but it made a lot of sense to me. He said, sin is kind of like a toll road, a toll road. It may be quicker, and it may be easier, but it always costs you something. Hmm. See, sin will cost us the enjoyment of walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. And that's what we should all desire. We should all desire to know him more to walk with him more, to have that fellowship and that closeness that he desires. But if we're not careful, we allow this sinfulness to separate us from the things of the Lord. So we've arrived at this place. We've arrived at this place in Scripture where God has created it good. Sin has entered the world. Everything changes. Everything's broken. And really at this point, we're kind of at the depth of despair. We're at the depth of, of hopelessness. We are scripturally in this chapter, really in the midst of a great tragedy, but I just want to show you something in God's infinite wisdom in the next couple of verses I want to think through just for a minute. Even in the midst of this great tragedy, there's hope. Because hidden, I'm going to show it to you here in a minute, hidden in these next two verses within the punishment and the justice and the judgment of sin is a ray of truth and hope and light. So let's look together now at verses 14 and 15. 
So God has spoken to the man, he's spoken to the woman, they've passed blame, they've hidden, they've descended away from the things of the Lord. They're sinful, they're not interested in repenting. The Lord is now going to punish the serpent and then in the next few weeks we'll see Adam and Eve. And so now Eve has now said, the serpent made me do it. And so the Lord is going to kind of cast his vision now and his look upon the serpent. So we see in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now I want to point something out to you and then we're going to delve into these verses. That even in the midst of this tragedy and the depth of despair... Even in the midst of this sin, the second truth that we see is that there is still hope. There's always hope in the midst of sin. Now, the Lord is going to take a look at the serpent. He's going to curse the serpent, right? You're going to have to crawl in your belly. You're going to eat dust. More cursed of you are you than all the other livestock. But then he says something in verse 15, and this is going to be the focus for the next few minutes. He makes this very interesting statement. Ah, this is the Lord will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the word enmity is used several different times in the Old Testament. And if you were to look up the word enmity and kind of do a word study on it, you would understand that whenever the word enmity is used, it's kind of a fancy word of saying that there's hostility between people. That's what enmity means. So if I said we have enmity between one another, there means there's some sort of a hostility between us. We're angry about something, we're mad about something, and we see kind of two levels of enmity in this verse. We see that there's this hostility or this enmity between the woman and the serpent first, and we understand that. That makes sense to us because this is the same serpent that tricked her and deceived her and led her to sin. So that makes sense to us. But then the Lord delves a little farther into an area that we might fully understand There's enmity between you and the woman, of course, and between your offspring and hers. And then he makes this interesting statement. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we ask the question, okay, the Lord's talking to the serpent. (laughs) He's standing in the garden, right? There's Adam and Eve. There's nobody else at this point. There's the serpent. There's Adam. There's Eve. There's the Lord. The Lord's speaking to Eve. Listen, you and the snake, you and the serpent are going to have anger between each other. Your descendants and his descendants will be angry with each other. And then he. Who's he? Now I want to submit to you, and I think I can back this up biblically. We're going to talk through this for just a few minutes. I think for the first time in Scripture, we see a veiled, faint picture of Messiah. I think God has said, and he's kind of veiled it even within this punishment of the snake. I love the way he's done this. God says, even in the midst of hopelessness, even in the midst of tragedy, there is still hope in Christ. There always has been, and there always will be. One author said it like this, speaking of this text, It gives us a first glimpse of the person and mission of the one who's going to be the central figure in the unfolding drama of redemption of the world. It's a picture of Christ. You say, now hold up now. (laughs) You're fast forward. Remember the old VCRs? 
You're fast forward past a lot of the good part here. Now, what you, you're telling me all of a sudden that this he is referring to Jesus. There's nothing here that will help me understand that this is Jesus. Well, there are three things I want you to see, and I've got a few more minutes, so bear with me. There are three things I want to kind of unpack to help you see where we're going with this. Here's the first thing we understand. I've got them on the screen for you. The first thing we know about whoever he is going to be is that he's a descendant of Adam and Eve. We know that. It's some man that's going to live at some point in the future because the Lord's already explained about the descendants. The Lord's already explained that there's going to be a person at some point in the future. And whoever he is is going to be a man that comes from Adam and Eve. Now flip with me, if you would, to Genesis 5 if you have your Bibles. We don't have this one on the screen, but I want to point this out to you. We'll, we'll get to Genesis 5 in a few months. I don't know when we'll get there. some point in the future, we'll be in Genesis 5. Hopefully 2015. We'll get here, but I want to point something out to you before we get there. Genesis 5 is interesting because it's a, it's a picture of the genealogy of Adam. And it walks through who's the father and who's the son and how many years they live. And it's a very interesting genealogy. And I think you can understand time, you know, time frame and how long ago this was based on this genealogy. But there's a pattern here. He kind of lists the person, how long they live, and then who their son was. And then he moves to the next person. We see this pattern over and over until we get to verse 28. I'm going to read it for you. Genesis 5, 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, right? So there's this guy named Lamech. He has a son. Okay. Had him when he was 182 years. You say, how did he have a son when he was under 182 years? We'll get to that, I promise. That has a lot to do with flood stuff. We'll get there at some point in the future. He named him, verse 29, Noah. Okay, so this is Noah's daddy. When his daddy was 182 years old, he had a son. He named him Noah. Now, the pattern in Genesis 5 would be for us to go to the next man, tell how old he was when he had a son, okay? But instead, we take this little interesting detour. In fact, we get a quote now from the father of Noah. Verse 29, he named him Noah and he said, oh, this is different, right? This is out of ordinary. This is not the normal pattern in Genesis 5. So let's camp out here for a few minutes. Here's what Noah's father said. Speaking of Noah, he, this is Noah, will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. See that? Now let me explain to you what Lamech is saying here. This man recognizes that the curse is upon the earth. We'll see that. God's going to curse the earth with Adam. We'll see that next week. God, God's going to change everything because of sin and death and everything that enters the world. The curse now has fallen upon all of humankind. Everything changes. We see now that this man recognizes the curse and he's hoping. He says, Noah will comfort us in the labor and painful toil our hands have seen caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. Lamech says, my son Noah, I hope he's the guy that can remove the curse. You see what he's doing here? Now Lamech doesn't understand what he's saying exactly. He doesn't understand what he's going, but he's actually hoping for a savior. You see that? We need somebody to come and save us. We need somebody to come and help us. We need, now follow with me the logic here, I just told you in a second. We need a man, a descendant of Adam and Eve, to be the savior to save us from this curse. So people already in the early part of Genesis recognize the curse, recognize the need for a savior. Now look with me at the second part of verse 15. We need to finish this up. Speaking of this man at some point in the future, he's a descendant of Adam and Eve. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, so he's a a descendant. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Not only is he going to be a male descendant at some point in the future, but the second thing, he's going to do battle against Satan and he's going to be wounded. We see that. Whoever he is is going to fight against Satan. Y'all are going to have this battle and Satan, you're you're going to strike his heel. You're going to wound him. Now, let me remind you of exactly what Christ accomplished for us. Let me remind you that Christ willingly walked to Jerusalem. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried, to be beaten, to carry his cross up to Calvary, to be nailed to the cross, and to die for our sins. He fought a battle with Satan and was greatly wounded for it. In fact, Isaiah 53 paints the picture. He was, speaking of Jesus, wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, but who knows, by his wounds we are healed. It's a picture of who Jesus was going to become for us. It's a picture of all he was going to give us, all he was going to do for us. And from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we get this veiled picture that he's going to do battle with the snake, he's going to do battle with the enemy, he's going to do battle with Satan, and he is going to be wounded, but he's not going to be defeated. Because the Bible, speaking of this male descendant of Adam and Eve, says he will eventually crush your head. Third thing we see is that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now we understand that Jesus won the battle against Satan. We understand that he won the victory on the cross. And Romans 16, 20 explains that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But the amazing part about this whole story to me, the amazing part about all that we see leading up to this point, is that we see from the beginning, in the midst of all this tragedy, in the midst of all this pain and suffering, and descending away from the things of the Lord, that God from the beginning had a plan to redeem you back to himself. Do you understand that? God loved you enough all those centuries and thousands of years ago He loved you enough to institute from the beginning a plan to redeem you back to himself. One writer said it like this. God made gracious provisions. Mankind will die and not live forever in this chaotic state. Children will be born so the human race will endure. But ultimate victory will come through Christ, the seed of the woman. I just, I just love how that verse in Genesis chapter 3 is, is written thousands of years ago. Hope in the midst of tragedy, but it still holds true today, doesn't it? No matter where you are right now, no matter what baggage you brought with you to church this morning, no matter how you're struggling, how you feel hopeless, no matter how far you've come and descended from the things of the Lord, right in the middle of your tragedy, right now, there's hope in Christ. And so I want to ask you this question as we finish up this morning. Who are you hiding from? Who are you running from? Where are you seeking joy and hope? Are you trying to find it in the world? Are you trying to find it in yourself, in your possessions? Or have you placed your trust in Christ? See, he's still here. He hadn't left. He hadn't walked away. We have.
I want to encourage you that there is great hope in the midst of tragedy. But it's only found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of salvation. This beautiful picture of hope and and love, Lord, and grace in the midst of struggle. Lord, it's it's a truth that was taught thousands of years ago, and it's true right now in my life. I pray, Father, we would understand that hope. I pray we would understand that truth and that power. And I pray that in the midst of of the sinfulness of the world, and even sometimes as we're surrounded by sinfulness and and mistakes that we make, I pray that we'd ultimately see the hope of Christ. I pray you would reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Father, we would come back in right relationship with you because of what Jesus accomplished for us all those centuries ago on the cross. Lord, we love you and we serve you. Speak clearly to us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can stand. We're gonna give you the chance for the next couple of minutes. Maybe you've been confronted for the first time that you're, you're not in right relationship with the Lord. Maybe for the first time you've been confronted with sinfulness and how you've separated yourselves and how you've spiraled more and more away from the Lord. I want you to know he's here. Come back to Christ. We're going to give you the chance right now to get that straight. If you want to come and pray for somebody at the altar, if you want to come down here and just kneel and, and, and pray for somebody that's in great need, you can do that. If you want to join the church, this is your time. You respond as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.